Amen. Well, two weeks ago, we began a series of messages on the unstoppable you. And we took, as you remember, maybe you remember, hopefully you do, uh, we said, you got to start, if you're going to start, you got to start at the end with the end in mind. And we talked about finishing well in your life. But the most important thing we want to look at this morning, and maybe the most important thing about you, is how much you love God. And so we're looking at that this morning, and we're asking ourselves the question, how important is that? But also, how can we grow in our Christian life to uh, lead us to uh, love the Lord more? And as we open up our Bible to our text, Matthew chapter 15, that I read just a few moments ago, as we open up this passage, we understand, again, the greatest thing a church can do is to teach you to love the Lord and inspire you to do that. Now, we can talk about the witness tree. We can talk about all the people that have been, 433 people, whatever it is, that we've witnessed to this year. 116 received Christ, and we praise God for all that. We can talk about the mission trips that we go on, and we can go through all the activity that says we love Jesus. But until we have it in our heart that our passion, our number one passion of life is to love the Lord, our God, with our heart, mind, soul, and strength. It's always going to be something that we have to push, always something we have to inspire every week, always something that's going to be temporary. And so the greatest thing, again, we can do is to teach you to trust and to love God. We, we talk about trust all the time. We talk about how to deal with your problems, how to trust God through the adversities of life. But what about loving the Lord? Now, the reason why Jesus said, I want you to do this, this Lord's Supper, the Last Supper reenacted, is for you to be grateful for what I've done for you. And so that if you remember how I've blessed you, in turn, you should love him more. And of course, who we love and how much we love that person or thing is going to determine our decisions in life. It's going to determine our passions in life, our direction in life. It's going to determine who's on the throne of our life. You know, we can talk about that too. Who's on the throne of your life? And every week you think, wow, you know, I'm just not sure it's Jesus and I'm just struggling with that. And the, and the thing is, we can talk about that a lot and we should, the Lordship of Christ, but it grows just like our witnessing, just like the life that we lead. It grows out of our love relationship with God. So we open to Mark chapter 15. And let me just share this little story with you. I, I remember being in college and reading through the New Testament for the very first time. And uh, I was a believer, but I wasn't passionate about Jesus anymore. I really wasn't. I began to read the book of Matthew, and I was enthralled. I mean, I just couldn't put it down. But it's not till I got to the passage that talked about the crucifixion of Jesus Christ that my heart was touched. And from that night on, as I fell in love with Jesus anew and afresh and in a new way, in a sense, my life's never been the same. I'm not saying I always love Jesus, but I can always go back to that time where I really gave it all to the Lord because of this very story. So let's look at it. We want to ask ourselves three questions. What happened at the cross? Why did it happen? And mostly this morning, how do we respond? Number one, what happened at the cross? Let's review back at verse 16. And the soldiers led him away inside the palace that is governor's headquarters. They called together the whole battalion and they clothed in them purple cloak, twisting together a crown of thorns. They put it on him. They mocked him, hailed the king of the Jews. They began to spit upon him, kneeling to, uh, before him in, in homage. 
And so what you find here is certain things happening. The Jews have brought Jesus before the Romans to be cru crucified. They wanted him gone. They didn't want him just put in jail, which they had the power to do, but only the Romans and their government had the right to crucify someone for capital punishment. Now, crucifixion was designed to be the most humiliating, torturous death of its time. In fact, it was outlawed in AD 300. But the Roman government embraced it because it was really a beast at heart. I remember going to the Holy Land several years ago and uh, visiting a place called Masada. And the most interesting thing about Masada, it was like a community up on a mountain that was uh, really contained within itself. And the entire Roman, uh, the Roman Empire conquered the entire known world except for Masada. And they put soldiers at the foot of that mountain for three years until they could, could get something done there. They, they, were so, uh, they, they were so immersed in their own power and their own cruelty, willing to do anything, kill anybody to gain that ground. They were a beast at heart. And so they, they came, the Jewish leaders came before uh, Pilate, the uh, representative of the uh, Roman government there in Jerusalem, and they said, we want him crucified. Why? Well, because he being a man claims to be God. And we understand that that's the reason, humanly speaking, why Jesus Christ was crucified. And so we look at this and we, we don't see in this passage, but in Matthew's gospel, he was whipped with a cat of nine tails. He was scourged. And what they had with a the scourge, they had a, a piece of wood and they had metal, or rather leather strips coming out from it. And on the end of those metal strips, they would have pieces of bone or metal. And they would either stick it to a man's back and drag it down or just simply flog him with it. And Jesus was flogged 39 times. And so you can, the scientists will tell you that you could actually probably separate the muscles on Jesus's back because of the scourging that he took. So he's already beaten. Now they mock him and now they take him to the cross to crucify him. We read, in verse 20, and they had mocked him. They stripped him on the purple cloak, put his own clothes on him, and they led him away to crucify him. They compelled passers-by. Simon carried his cross. He was too weak to carry his own cross. They brought him to a place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull. Now, there's some debate in the Holy Land on where Jesus Christ was crucified, where he was buried. It can only be one of really two places. And one of them is Gordon, called Gordon's Calvary. And uh, this man, Gordon, who, who was leading an army, looked up and saw a skull up on a mountain, on a mountain face. He said, this has got to be it. This is, this is Golgotha. This is the place of the skull. And somebody said, well, no, they just called it that because they had bones laying around. Jewish people would never allow bones to be exposed. And so that's, that's not a good argument. So this may indeed be the place. Up on top of that mountain where Jesus Christ was crucified, supposedly crucified, is a bus station. And the only reason I bring that out uh, is because it seemed like life just went on and sometimes life just goes on with us but without us other, ever taking notice of what Jesus Christ has done for us. Well, all we see here is a description. They crucified him. It's mentioned here several times. They offered him wine to drink. This is a painkiller. They crucified him. They didn't go into any detail. And back in the New Testament times, they didn't have to. But here's a rendition Philip Keller in one of his books uh, shares with us. 
Jesus was stretched out, prostrated on the cross beams. With the ominous sound of iron on iron, the nails pierced his sinews and flesh. Blood spurted from the wounds as the spikes sank into the tough wood. He writhed in pain. Then his feet were laid flat on the wood. With his legs drawn up, two more terrible spikes did their dreadful work. Like the thousands of other lambskins stretched in the mid-morning sun that day, so the Son of God lay stretched beneath the burning skies of Judea. God's Passover lamb was there for all to see. It was the most ghastly altar upon which any human sacrifice had ever been offered. God, very God, hang there, suspended between heaven and earth as the supreme substitute for us. What a description. As he hung there in the blood, the body, body said, you know, we just read about that about the Lord's Supper. The body broken for us. The blood spilt for us. Now we ask ourselves the question, why? Many of you as believers know the answer to that question, but somebody, some people do not. I remember as a college student uh, sharing Christ at Clemson University, and I was talking to a lot of stu- several students there, three or four of them, and I began to really, I guess, touch, try to touch their heart a little bit with the story of Jesus because my heart was touched this way. So I, I shared with them the story of Jesus' crucifixion. At the end of it, one girl just said, well, what, how do I respond to that? I mean, do I feel sorry for him or what? She didn't understand. She didn't get it. And I tried to explain to her that Jesus just didn't die to demonstrate some kind of love for us that had no purpose. His dying for us for his love and showing his, uh, uh, us his love had a purpose in mind. I want you to look further with me in this passage. It said in verse 24, they crucified him and then they mocked him. And then finally in verse 33, and when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. Now this is noon till three o'clock in the afternoon. And some people say, oh, it's just kind of a natural solar eclipse. And if it was, that's fine with me, except for eclipse, solar eclipses do not last that long. So this is some sort of miraculous event that happened at the time that Jesus Christ was dying. Why? Why darkness over the land? Because darkness in the Bible is a symbol of sin. Jesus was taking on your sins and mine. Now the Bible says, uh, in fact, in Luke 22, it says this, when I was with you, Jesus said, and he was talking here in in the Garden of Gethsemane, he said, I was with you in the temple every day. You do not lay your hands on me, but this is your hour and the power of darkness. Darkness is a metaphor for sin. The Bible says in 1 Peter 3, for Christ also suffered once for what? Sins. The sins that we have committed against the Lord. Now, sin is anything that you do wrong. Anytime you do something that you should, should do, but you don't do, that's a sin. The Ten Commandments, all the things that go with the Ten Commandments, we've broken. I've explained all this before, either with our body or with our mind, we've all broken the Ten Commandments. And what happens to that is it separates us from God and puts us in a sense of darkness. Now, in the Bible, God is compared to the sun, S-U-N, quite often. And we think about our earth rotating around the sun. And because we have that, we have light, we have life. Wasn't for the sun, we wouldn't be able to have life. But we also have truth because we can see. During the day, we, we can actually see what's going on all around us. 
and we know about the trees. We, we know about whether they're dead, whether they're alive, whether they're pretty, not so pretty. We see the rivers, we see the oceans, we see the grass, we see the homes around here. We, we can see, we have knowledge of what is taking place. Darkness, or rather, darkness happens when we say to ourselves, I'm no longer gonna orbit around the sun, just like the earth. If the earth did not rotate around the sun and decided to, oh, I don't know, rotate around Jupiter, we would all die. We'd have no light, we'd have no knowledge. And so when your life and my life no longer, or do not, does not revolve around the, the sun, S-O-N, then our life really gets, well, we suffer disillusionment. We're just kind of disillusioned because we can't see, we don't, we don't know the truth. We don't have the warmth. Let me give you an example. You know, you walk into a room and it's totally dark. I mean, no light at all. You can't tell whether the room is clean. You can't tell whether the room is messed up. So I don't wanna gross anybody out here, but suppose you sit down on a nice fluffy couch and you can't see anything, but you sit down and there's something really gooey there, you know? And you just think, oh man, they got, oh, this is jail. You know, no wonder it's so comfortable. And there's a person that you hear the voice of someone and they're sitting in a chair and they're sitting among garbage and you begin to smell the garbage so you know that things are not clean there, but you get used to the garbage smell. So you just get used to it. And the person that's sitting in the chair, that's sitting in the dark, is trying to describe to you what life's all about. Well, they're smart. No, they're, they're trying to, and you're agreeing with them or correcting them, and everybody is in this dark room describing what the room looks like, describing uh, the, the cleanliness they're in, describing the, the, the garbage and the goo that they smell. And this is called being really disillusioned with things. It's, it's called not being able to, to adapt to the truth that's around you. I remember... Um, in this kind of disorientation, just recently being in Alaska. And I would ask um, several people, well, where do you live? You know, just striking up conversation and um, some of the guides and helpers. And they would say, well, we, one, this one particular one lived in San Diego. We go there about um, eight, nine months out of the year and then come down here to Alaska and, and do this, uh, this excursion. Well, why don't you live here? Well, this lady said, I lived here for six years but I couldn't take it. I, I got so disoriented, there was no, there was no light. It, it kind of made me a little bit, you know, depressed and some people would go kind of crazy. Some people just can't take it. There was a South Pole expedition done years ago by the British government. And this uh, South Pole expedition went down almost going to the South Pole and then turning around and coming back. And thankfully everybody lived but they asked the question, why didn't you continue? He said, well, from mid-May through July, there's no light at all. It's just all darkness. We couldn't tell what was up, east, west. We, we couldn't tell anything. We could not see ourselves. It was, it was driving us mad. When you and I are in darkness, spiritual darkness, there is a disorientation. We can't tell the truth. We don't know exactly what it is. And we see this in our world today where up is down and, and down is up. And we see killings going on in the school and we see all kinds of excuses for sin and the Bible being twisted around for one thing or another and leaving the scripture. And we know that as we're blinded to the truth, 
We sort of become, if I can say this again, people of our time. How is that happening? How is it that we say, well, you know, I, I don't know. Now, the Bible says this, and boy, we never saw this before in previous generations. Why? But they were people of their time. Or you can say, well, we don't believe this in the Bible anymore. Why? Well, we're people of our time. We're listening to the news. We're listening to the media. We're listening to our friends. We're listening to the school teachers, some of them at least. We're listening to the professors at the university. We're all sitting around in the dark, and some people are smarter than others, but we still can't see. We can't see what's going on with God. We can't see spiritually. And so the Bible even says in 2 Corinthians 4, 4, in the case of, a, of the God of this world, meaning Satan, has blinded the minds of unbelievers. Those who refuse to believe have come to the place in their life where Satan is allowing them or God is allowing Satan to come and say, okay, if you don't want to believe, you don't want to believe, and blinded the minds of many who un are unbelievers. And so we see, in case you're taking uh, notes in your outline, um, we see the darkness we experience, but also we see the darkness Jesus exposed. Look with me in verse 34. And in the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now you think about that for just a moment. At this point, Jesus took on our darkness. All the sin came upon him. And no one ever suffered like Jesus Christ. This, this whole phrase, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me, has that sense of abandonment. Now there's no suffering, folks. There's just no suffering like losing love. Whether you're a teenager in high school and you lose someone that you feel like you're really in love with, and maybe you are, certainly, and, and you think, I've lost them. You, you, you lost someone in marriage to, to divorce or a death, or you lost a child, you lost a mom or a dad. Nothing go, goes through your mind in suffering, like losing someone that you truly love. You're truly a part of your life. Well, think about it for just a moment. No one ever suffered like Jesus suffered. Why? Not only did he take on your sins and mine and the sins of everybody in the entire world, and sin brings about suffering. We know that. But also he was separated from the one who had a loving relationship, a father relationship with for the centuries, for all of eternity. For the first time, it was broken. He lost it. He lost something, a love relationship that he had had in all of his existence. No one ever suffered like him. He went to the cross and he died there for your sins and mine and everything that we've done was placed upon him. And it was so heinous that of course the Bible says God cannot stand to look upon sin. So he turned his back on the sun for a moment, for three hours while he died there for you and I. Well, we see it exposed but Jesus also expelled it. Jesus Christ, it says, for Christ, for Christ also suffered once for sins. The righteous for the unrighteous. He was the righteous one. This is the first time and the only time in history that God treated a righteous man like an unrighteous man so the unrighteous people can become righteous and treated like righteous. Dying there, taking our place, on the cross for our sins. Once 
for all. You see, it's not that we come before the Lord's table today and said, okay, if you partake of this, you're going to be saved. Or the baptism. You know, a lot of Baptists would, would tell you, oh, I, I've been baptized. That means I must, I must have been saved. I don't know where they get that, but they would tell you that. And other people of other religions say, you know, no, you've got to take these things in order to, to gain favor with God and, and to be saved. So you sort of get saved over and over again every time you, you take the Lord's Supper or any time you get baptized. Wrong. The Bible doesn't say that. The Bible says it's an act of faith. Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. It's not anything we do on the outside. It's not about all the work that we do. It's simply and totally by the grace of God. He expelled that as, as we hear his cries. Notice what it says here. It says, some of the bystanders hearing it said, behold, he is calling for Elijah. This is a prophet of the Old Testament. And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink, saying, wait. Let us see whether Elijah will come and take him down. They were given a painkiller. People kind of mercy with God, of God. And Jesus uttered a loud cry, breathed his last. One gospel said he cried out, it is finished. The debt's been paid. The curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, signifying our access now to God. And the centurion who stood facing him saw and in this way, he breathed his last. He said, truly, this was the Son of God. Jesus died. The Bible says that veil in the temple, that veil that separated us from God, was taken by the very fingers of God and torn in half. Signifying now, telling us now, it's no longer just the priest can go in with a rope tied around his waist just in case he touched the ark and died. They could pull him out. It's not just one time. It's not just the priest that can go into the Holy of Holies just outside the curtain. He says, now everyone that calls upon the name of the Lord, the veil is torn. You can have an intimate relationship with God. You can know him and grow to love him. So what does all this mean to us? Of course, to the person that's never received Christ, it's like a cold slap in the face. You know, there's not many doors to heaven. There's just that one door. Jesus said, I am the door. I've made the door. There's no doors before. I am the door. But what does it mean to us as believers? Three things I want to look at this morning as I close. Number one, we see more clearly. We're to see more clearly. Notice the centurion he looked at all these things were happening, and he said, truly, this was the Son of God. It's like the light turned on. I remember um, as a student at um, University of Georgia, um, my pastor was Bill Ricketts, Prince Avenue Baptist Church, and he invited me a few times to go out and share, uh, you know, go out witnessing with him, go out on visitation. So I remember this one particular time we were out, and I think it was the first time. And we came across, we visited one of my old high school PE coaches. Now, I don't think that was a coincidence, do you? I had no idea that we were going to do that. And there I was. And this, this was one of the nice guys. You know, sometimes they are, sometimes they're not. He was a real nice guy. He used to play football for the University of Georgia, big offensive guard. And he had quit teaching, and he'd gone into business for himself. And he started visiting Prince Avenue Baptist Church. And so um, we were there, sitting in the living room. And um, he had a lot of questions. Just one thing after another, some of the typical things that you would, you would ask, perhaps. 
and uh, about God and about the Bible. And um, my pastor fielded the questions very well, but basically getting back to the gospel, sharing the gospel with him. And you could just sense the Holy Spirit really just moving in that room. And he asked him, he said, Terry, that was his name, would you like to receive Christ? He said, you know, I would. I would. So we bowed in prayer, and he prayed the, the prayer that I sort of like I often pray at the end of services. He repeated it out loud. And just like I guess I do, and maybe you do too, when you finish praying, you immediately start talking because you want to get down to what you need to do next. Well, after a, a sentence or two, uh, Terry just interrupted my pastor. He said, wait a minute, I, I just need to tell you something. He said, I can see it now. I couldn't see it before. All those questions, I couldn't see it. I can see it now. We see truth more clearly. The Word of God comes alive. We can interpret the world's events, what's going on around us in light of the Bible. We can see it. But then, the cross causes us, or should cause us, to love more deeply. The Lord's Supper, gratitude. What happens? We're so grateful to God. We're thankful to God. Why? Because we understand our sin is heinous. See, part of the problem why we do not love God maybe enough is because we can't remember what it's like to be without him. We can't remember what it's like to be lost, and therefore we, we think, well, my sin wasn't that bad. I mean, he, he's, you know, boy, it was really bad. You hear some of these great testimonies of people who just get all teary-eyed about Jesus and how they came to know Christ because they realize something. There was darkness in their life. You see, we can't appreciate the cross enough until we realize just how bad our sin hurt God and how bad things were without any rationalization. We love God more deeply. You know, we do set up walls, don't we? You know, I, I mentioned this before in a previous message three or four months ago that one of the biggest things men have problems with is praying with their, their family, particularly their wives. And we went through that, and kind of the, the pride thing, the wall thing, and, and, and be vulnerable. But don't we all do that with God a little bit? Kind of reminds me of those detective shows you know, on TV, like Castle, and if you've ever remember that show, you know, the, the, the man and the woman, you know, they're, they're trying to solve crimes together. And it's like uh, Jamie and his partner on Blue Bloods, you know, they're riding together in the car every day, and they got this wall that separates them. They won't date. They, they, they kind of flirt with the idea, but they won't do it. Why? Because, well, there's a partnership there. They don't want to cross that line. They don't want to ruin their friendship, their partnership. They don't want to take a chance on that. So there's a wall that goes up. Now, the good news is <clears throat> uh, they're engaged now, just in case some of you are wondering, which, of course, you know what that means, right? The show's over. You know, once, once all that, once they start getting married, I mean, you know, it's done. Nobody ever watches it anymore. So anyway, they got this wall up. Don't we do the same thing? You know, God, I don't want you to get too close. I don't want to feel vulnerable with you. I don't know what you're going to say to me. I, I don't know what's going to happen. And so we sort of, God, I love you. I really do, I, I do love you, but there's that wall there. You've got to tear down the wall. Loving Jesus and appreciating and really being moved by what he's done for you on the cross will cause you to remove that wall and love God more deeply. That's, that's what should happen. That's a natural thing, an increased passion for Jesus Christ. And lastly, living more holy. 
You know, we, we don't preach on that anymore because it's offensive, you know, to say, well, I'm a sinner, now you're telling me I'm not even holy. Yeah, I'm telling you, I'm not holy. I mean, I'm trying to become more like Jesus, but I'm not Jesus, I'm not like Jesus. But as my love for God grows, I wanna be more like Jesus. I wanna be right, I wanna do the right things. George Barna, who researches um, the church and the world and all kinds of surveys, said basically this. And in fact, Eileen basically comes right out and says, he sees no difference between how the church is living and how the world's living. You know how hard it is to share Christ with someone who sees the church in that manner? And it's not just about, you know, what we do on the outside, that's part of it, as far as our ministry, but it's also what we're doing here on the inside, what we're doing with our life personally. And you say, well, yeah, but I don't, I don't like the do's and the don'ts and the legalism, if that's what you're talking about. I'm not talking about that at all. Let me tell you what I'm talking about. Um, some of you men can remember this. You can remember being someone that you would never, being the type of guy you would never want your daughter to date. But then you met this girl and you fell in love and you would do anything for her. You didn't even go to church for her. You'd consider the, call, the claims of Christ. You'd open the door for her. You'd give up this and give up that. Why? Because you wanted to please her. You loved her. The wall had come down with ladies. I see this more with ladies than I do with, with men. You know, I, uh, <clears throat> there's a lot of teenage guys that love Jesus, just like there's a lot of teenage girls love Jesus. But one thing I've noticed in my um, few years of ministry is that men and women, there, there's really no difference between how much they love God and how much they want to follow God until that first baby is born. Changes the life. The man says, "Woo! I better go out and really make a living now. I got to send this kid through college. I got to do this. Gotta... But the lady thinks, wow, look at this that I'm holding in my arms. Wow. We got to get back in church. We got to do something. Why? We're all motivated by the same thing. Love. When you fall in love with Jesus, it's not a list of do's and don'ts. It's just a matter of, wow, in my heart, I just feel like this is the right thing to do, and I want to do it. A life that's different. A life that other people can look at and say, okay, I can see what you're talking about now. I know this person, and boy, they're, they're, there's really a difference in their life. There's a passion there for God, and I'm curious. I want to know. I want to know about it. The humility of just coming to the cross and saying, God, I see how the darkness has affected my life. And wow, God, that you would take on that darkness for me is just overwhelming in my life. I reminded of a story, and I'll close with this. But there was, um, and I've told it many, many times, 
In fact, maybe this is my favorite story among VBS, or Vacation Bible School, I should say. And uh, I probably told this 100 times during Vacation Bible. Well, that's impossible. I've only been through 25. I've told it at least 20 times, okay? Put it, I'm going to put something different to it. So be patient with me, please. In 1930s, there was a man <clears throat> that ran a drawbridge. And um, uh, he took his son to work with him one day, his five-year-old son. And as they were... Uh, looking around the gears and different machinery of the drawbridge, a boat began to come, began to come. And he said, well, hold it right here. Don't touch anything. He runs up the ladder, raises up the drawbridge just in time for the boat, for the boat to pass through. But then he hears a train blowing its whistle around the curve. Oh, I, I, he says, I got to get this bridge down as quickly as possible. If I don't, all those people on the train are going to die. So he's waiting for the boat, waiting for the boat. And then he hears his son crying out. He looks down, and he's hung himself. He's stuck in the gears of that drawbridge. And the man knows, if I lower the drawbridge, my son will die. But if I don't, all those people on the train will die. Without much hesitation, he lowers the drawbridge. He hears the screams of his son. But all those people on the train are saved. Now, there's three different types of people on that train. One didn't even notice what went on. Two, they noticed and think, well, that's reasonable. Sacrifice one for the many. Okay, I, I can get that. Untouched, unmoved. And the third one thinking, I can't believe what that guy did for me. Three types of people I really talk to about the Lord. I ask them, um, are you saved or are you a Christian? Well, I didn't know I needed saving. And what are you talking about? I don't believe that stuff. I, I didn't know I needed saving. The second group look at you and say, well, yeah, I'm a Christian. Of course I am. I, I was raised in a Christian church. I was raised this, this religion or that religion. Uh, my, my mother was a Christian, and I've always believed the Bible. And then there's the third group that says, yes, I am a Christian. And I simply cannot believe that of all the people in the world, Jesus would die for me. That's the humility of the cross. We come, we realize what God's done. And we realize because of that, he opens up a love relationship to us that we can receive. With heads bowed and eyes closed, what a, as, as I look at this, where, where do you fit into this category? Person number one that would say, well, you know, uh, that's all good to know, but I'm not all that interested. Well, a person can only get saved by the drawing of the Holy Spirit. If you're resisting, that's one thing. If you're not, and he's just not moving on your heart, you, you've got a problem, a problem that I need to pray for you, with you about. But you may be in the second category. Well, yeah, I've been raised in church, of course. I mean, that... That moves me, and that's really good and fine and good, but, you know, I, I think I deserve saving, I guess. You know, I'm, I'm a pretty good person. Or are you the third person today and saying, you know, I can't believe what Jesus has done for me. I mean, of all people, he died for me. What manner of love is this, that one laid down his life for his friends? Would you like to become that friend? If that's the condition of your heart, 
If you want to receive Jesus, I'm here this morning to pray with you. And I want to pray with you silently, or you can pray silently with me as I pray out loud. Pray with me now. Lord God, thank you that you do love me. I go through a lot in life, and I realize I'm sitting in the darkness. I just can't see. There's no light. I don't feel like there's any life. There's got to be something more. So God, I reach out to you today. And I ask Jesus Christ, who died for me, to come and save me, come into my life. Save me from my sin. Help me to love him supremely in my life. So I can rotate and orbit around Jesus Christ the Son and really have life. In Jesus' name, amen. This morning, I want to encourage you, if you prayed that prayer with me, to take this card over on the back. It says, my decision today. And the top, it says, I've decided to surrender my life to Christ. Put a little check in that box. Place in the offering plate along with our visitor cards and other prayer requests. And we'll, we'll uh, get back to you and make sure you get the literature you need in order to take the next steps as a believer. But maybe this morning you say, no, the light's turned on. And I want to tell somebody. I want somebody to pray with me right now. We're going to open up the altar, and I believe I'm going to challenge every Christian here to come and say, God, help me. Help me to love you more. Help me to find the passion in my life. Help me to do what I need to do in order to seek out that kind of passion. Thanks for listening. You can find more sermons and other information at crosslifechurch.com.